Our God and Father, we are so grateful today, Lord, just to know you. And, and Father, what a privilege it is to, to love you and to esteem you highly, to know you and to walk in your love. Oh Lord, we rejoice at all that you are to us, the very sustainer of our lives. God, how amazing you are that you have created this universe. And Lord, you have written your glory all through the heavens. It is all around us, God. And the idea of your immensity and your vastness, your greatness is for all to behold. We must simply open our eyes to see the hand of God. And Lord, today as we consider you, we, we have come to worship you and to give you glory and to devote ourselves to you and commit ourselves to you and to use our faculties, God, to to praise you and to exalt you and worship you. And we thank you for this privilege as well. Oh Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus by which you have canceled our sins. That you have paid that debt in full that we were owing that God, you sent your Son and sacrificed him for us. We praise you. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us in our Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask today as we look into your word that you would give us insight, that you would give us understanding. Father, that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would change us and make us like you, God. We thank you for the privilege of gathering in this place with all of your holy family. And we ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that thing is buzzing again, isn't it? Is it, is it uh, look like it's been turned up? I wonder if that speaker itself has gotten turned up. Maybe. We'll just have to check it later. Still buzzing now? Is that better? It's better. Okay. Okay. So that brings us in our study of 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. If you have your uh, your uh, notebook handy... You might turn all the way back to page four, five of our lesson. There's an outline at the bottom of page five. A lot of your Bibles, especially if you have a study Bible, it'll also have an outline of the book of 1 Thessalonians right at the very beginning of the book. So I'm just pointing out that in this last chapter, there's basically three sections. 
Paul makes a transition at verse 11, then again at verse 22. And uh, if you will, we are uh, just ending that section where Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ, which really extends from chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. And um, today that brings us to verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, where Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another, build up one another, just as also you are doing. So here he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he refers here to wrath, he's referring all the way back to verses 1 through 3, where he talks about the wrath of God in the day of the Lord coming suddenly upon those who are saying peace and safety. He's saying of that day and time, it will overtake them as a thief. But in verses 4 through 6, it will not overtake you as a thief, For you are all sons of day and sons of light. And so here he's kind of bringing these thoughts to a conclusion. And he's making the point that God isn't going to come and suddenly destroy us. Why? For he hadn't destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Amen? God didn't save us to destroy us. He saved us to save us and bless us. Amen? Amen. Here Paul is saying, God has not destined us. That is, the sovereign God is the one who holds our destiny. And that destiny is absolutely clear. It is not for wrath, but instead for obtaining salvation. God did not save us to destroy us, but instead to set his love upon us, deliver us, and set us apart from sin and to glorify his greatness by a mighty salvation which, he ha- which has come to us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here Paul is continuing his thought from verses 5, 1, and 2, describing what it will be like at the coming day of the Lord. The unbelieving world will be unaware of his coming and suddenly destroyed like a thief in the night. But the Christians will not be overtaken by that day as a thief, but instead, being alert and sober, will in fact be delivered from the coming wrath, as verses 4, 15 through 17 so clearly portray. First comes the deliverance and rescue, then comes the wrath and destruction. I repeat here that this is abundantly clear in the teaching of our Lord. And, of course, I spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this idea or this principle that what happens in God's judgment frequently and is also a type in the Old Testament is that his deliverance and his rescue of the righteous comes and then immediately comes the destruction. And this is exactly what Jesus told us would be the case at his second coming. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and following. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And so he says it was just like it was in the days of Noah, that they were just going on through life, buying and planting, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And of course, we looked at the passage back on your lesson, chapter 50, uh, page 56. We looked at the, the sister passage to this, which is in Luke chapter 17, verses 25 through 37. And there Jesus adds the illustration of Lot. And he, use, he uses that and says in verse 29 there of Luke 17, But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. What's his point? His point is this. First comes the deliverance and rescue, then comes wrath and destruction. The two are inseparably tied together at the coming of the Lord. When Jesus comes, the wrath of God comes with him, but not until he delivers his saints. Noah was eagerly awaiting the coming judgment of God. He didn't know the day or the hour, but he knew that God had said he would judge, and it would be in his lifetime. Therefore, he was about the master's business of building an ark. All the while, the mocking rebels of the world looked on with amazement while he built the great ark in the middle of a place where it had never rained. But when the judgment came, Matthew 24:38 says, Noah entered the ark. But the people of the world did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. First came Noah's deliverance, then came the sudden destruction of God's wrath, of which the world was unaware, likely thinking that it was a time of peace and safety, or at a minimum, another day as usual, eating, drinking, and marrying. I hope those things have been clear to you in this text. Um, It's very clear in the teaching of Jesus that the people of the world are unaware that he's coming. And they do not understand the coming judgment of Christ. However, the believer is to be alert and sober, paying close attention to the events of the day. Amen? And eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord. Paul goes on here, though, and he says God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Can we have a greater proof that God will not destroy us? than the fact that he sacrificed his son so that we could live. Can he say in greater terms that he intends for our good and that our salvation is of such importance to him 
that he would sacrifice the most valuable thing in the world to him, even his only begotten son. Indeed, the Christ who died for us is proof of God's love toward his called and chosen people and sufficient means to save us from the wrath to come. As Paul had said in chapter 1, verse 10, that these Thessalonians were uh, to wait for his son from heaven when he ra- whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who what? Delivers. delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is coming to deliver us from the wrath. Amen? That is, in fact, exactly what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and following tell us. That Christ is going to descend from heaven with the command of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? It will be at that time when the day of the Lord comes that the people of the world will be saying peace and safety and not having understanding of what's happening with our deliverance. And then what? Sudden destruction will come upon them all. They will be unaware. But the church will have his light in her eyes. Amen? She'll be eagerly awaiting. As you see all these things coming to pass, lift up your head, for your redemption is drawing near. Amen? So then, Paul now refers all the way back to chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, when he says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Now, do you remember that discussion back in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, where Paul was making the point that of Christians who die, we're not like the rest of the world who grieve and have no hope, but we know, right, that we are going to be reunited with them at the coming of the Lord. Amen? That's his point, verses 13 through 18. He's making it very clear that we are again going to see those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Amen? Notice here that all the way down into chapter 5 and verse 10, he is making reference all the way back to chapter 4, verse 13. You see that? This is why the context of Scripture is so important. Okay, let me point this out to you. Consider this, that all the way down, some 17 verses later, Paul is still got in his mind as he's reasoning through the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the day of the Lord and the destruction and and how we're to be alert and, and sober. And he's still got this idea in that in his mind going on that we're not like those who have no hope. But we're still we're going to be reunited with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Do you understand how even in the context of First Thessalonians chapter five verse ten, that First Thessalonians chapter four verse thirteen is still in the mind of the writer? Can you see that? This is why we are always trying to tell you that when you're you're, you're discerning Scripture, that you you have got to keep in mind at all times the context in which the words are found. Because words have no meaning in and of themselves except in the context that they're found. Okay? And of course, there's a lot more to it than that. But the point is, is simple, that here's a perfect example where you have some 17 or 18 verses separating 
uh, with all kinds of thoughts and things that are described in between. Yet, in the mind of the writer, he's still on this plane where he's thinking about these ideas that he had spoken of earlier. You see that? So it's important to pay close attention. His point here is, whether we Christians are alive now or have passed away in death, we will live together with him. Christian believers are now in Christ and shall never be separated from him. Nothing in life nor even death can separate us from him. As Paul so eloquently writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and following, he says there, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says there, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Amen? What comforting words the word of God is filled with. Amen? Consider these verses we've looked at and what they actually say about what's soon coming upon this world. Imagine that Christ himself, that babe that was born in a manger some 2,000 years ago, at which the heavenly bodies did lead the wise men to his feet. And there the shepherds saw the angels of God announcing his birth. This poor, humble, meek, obscure Jewish carpenter who was in fact God in the flesh who came to live a perfect life fully carrying out all of God's precepts and statutes all the way leading up into the sacrifice in which he was the ultimate sacrifice fulfilling all previous sacrifices which God had ordained pointing to that day when he would give his life on that cross with the mocking rebels calling him to save himself and calling him to get down from the cross and yet he poured out his life unto death that he's coming again on the clouds with power and great glory and the heavenly bodies are going to be shaken and all the nations of the earth are going to mourn and he is going to completely rearrange the order of created things <laughs> before all eyes behold Revelation 1-7 says he's coming on the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him these are amazing verses of scripture and dear friends we should treasure them they can encourage us even in our darkest hour amen
Because we know that things aren't going to remain this way forever. The Lord's coming soon, and very soon we're going to see the King. Amen? High and lifted up in all His glory with His feet on the neck of His enemies. Amen? I don't know about you, but I can't wait. I guess I'll have to. (laughs) But I sure feel like I can't do it. I'm so eager. Aren't you? He goes on in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Here Paul has ended his discourse on the parousia, verses 4, 13 through 5, 11, and moves on to yet a different theme. In this closing section, he will give various greetings and statements on church life, as is his custom at the close of a letter. As he shifts his thinking to matters of church life, he respectfully addresses the matter of church leadership, stating, but we request of you, brethren... Here Paul will address both the members of the church in regard to their disposition before the leadership, verses 12 and 13, and also the leadership themselves in regard to carrying out their duties, verses 14 and 15. He first exhorts the church members in two ways about how they relate to their leaders. He tells them that they should both appreciate them and also esteem them very highly in love. The Christian duty here is that they both honor and love their leaders. Of this honor, Paul describes it as appreciate, meaning to both be grateful to God and to consider them valuable. To further amplify this duty of appreciate, he says they should esteem them very highly. Esteem meaning to place value upon. And this, he says, they should do very highly in love. The degree of this honor and esteem to church leaders is not just high, but held in the agape love of God. The word here is not phileo. The word here is agape. This is to say that you regard your church leaders so highly that you are committed to them with much affection and in the self-sacrificing love of God. This was Paul's common teaching referred to in many places. For example... In Philippians 2, verses 29 and 30, there he writes of, uh, I think it's Epaphroditus, he's writing of there to the church. He says, Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. I'd like to mention that I don't think that this just applies to our local church leaders that it since we believe in the holy catholic church right and that the church is a universal body of people that exists in all nations and tribes and languages to which it has spread right that we also then have a universal view of the church do we not and therefore the church is filled with leaders And here Paul is saying that those who diligently labor and have charge over you and give you instruction, you are to hold, you are to, number one, appreciate them, but to hold them uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, 
Esteem them very highly in love. Now, family, does it not go without saying that we should therefore speak about them very respectfully? Are you with me? Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not just talking about local church leaders. I'm talking about those who lead you, those who have charge over you and give you instruction. Now, the idea of those who have charge over you, obviously, is pointing to those in your local church, right? But even so, right, there is a body of group uh, of church leaders who, who give us instruction and who diligently labor among us. We could sit here and raise hands, and you could tell me, give me testimony of many church leaders who are not in our church but in other churches and other places who have so well served you and discipled you and built you up in love with their diligent labor. Amen? Amen. Does it not go without saying that we ought to hold these men in high regard and that we should speak very respectfully of them? And that we should be, listen, slow to judge. Slow to criticize. Are you with me? And moreover, here's the point I'm really getting at. When you criticize the teaching of church leaders, you ought to criticize the teaching and not so much the leader. Do you understand what I'm saying? Especially if we're talking about some secondary or tertiary matter. And, and here's what I'm saying. I have a real disdain for the way that Christians speak about other Christians. Especially Christian leaders who give themselves diligently to the work of the Lord and to pastoring his church and to instructing his people. Men who are scholars who give their whole life to studying the Bible. It's hard work, let me tell you. It's hard work studying the Bible. Day in, day out, week in, week out. Week in, week out, bring in the word. It's a burden of the word of the Lord that men have. Okay? And for us to pelt them with stones is not right. We need to hold them and esteem them and appreciate them very highly in love. Are you with me? It's not to say you have to agree with them. If they're wrong, you ought to disagree with them. And you ought to do it very respectfully. That's what I'm saying. Are you with me? Do you understand and agree that what I'm saying is right and true and good and noble? Yes? Yes. Amen. Let's practice that. Let's practice that. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, For this would be unprofitable for you. And here again, Paul is writing to the church and telling them to submit to their leaders, to obey them, and to do this, uh, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Don't grieve your leaders. Esteem them very highly in love. That's what Paul's saying. Amen? God help us. Now as to who these leaders are, Paul describes them as those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Here see the office of a pastor elder plainly referred to. It's not just those who work hard among you, but those who diligently labor and also 
have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. These are the basic duties of a Christian elder and describe in general terms the ministry of a pastor or shepherd. It was Paul's custom to appoint elders in every church, Titus 1.5, including on his first missionary journey, Acts 14.23. He would frequently instruct the church about honoring, obeying, and compensating these men. His emphasis was on those who diligently labor and work hard for the spiritual benefit of the church. As for example, he writes in 1 Timothy 5:17 through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Amen? Amen. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14, Actually, there's a very large passage there in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is describing these things, but this kind of gets right to the heart of it. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Amen? And so here's Paul is saying, not only do you esteem them highly with love, but you what? Give them your money. Amen? That's the command of the Lord. Now, the reason he gives for this honor and respect toward elders is because of their work in serving the spiritual life of the church. And so he tells them, you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Not only does he want them to honor and love them, but also to live in peace with them, as well as everyone in the church, stating with one another. Christians are to submit to their leaders and by so doing, promote an atmosphere of peace among the family of God. Have you ever been involved in a church split? Or maybe we'll just call it a faction or a dissension, they can be very, very painful. Some of you could testify. I was recently talking to a sister, and she was describing how she had gone through a situation like this and how it had nearly destroyed her marriage because her and her husband were involved in the leadership in this specific church, and when this thing all kind of finally panned out, it it had taken a huge toll on their marriage. And... uh, she was just describing the pain that was involved with that whole situation. And, and, and still, years after this has happened, the pain that's still going on, not just with her, but everyone who was involved with that. Well, I have experienced that. And, and I am aware of the great pain that is involved. Because what happens when you're divided with people that you love? Right? It's, it's, there's a great tearing that takes place. It's a lot like a divorce because a church is so much like a family. Amen? Can you split a family apart? Right? Not without hurt, that's for sure. Okay? And, of course, we know that the Scripture tells us there are times when it's necessary that that happen. Right? It doesn't mean it's without pain. And not only that, but we're exhorted again and again and again to strive for the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. 
We are to, 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 to make every effort to have peace with our brothers. Amen? Why? Because we're peacemakers. Why? Because we're ruled by who? The Prince of Peace. Amen? And so it is so important that we hear the exhortation of the Spirit to live in peace with one another. Amen? And that we not allow divisions to come. And whenever there is a division, listen, that we strive with our brothers with much patience and love and respect. And we do everything we can to point them to the Word. Right? And not only that, but to listen when they're pointing us to the Word. Right? God's not confused about some issue of doctrine, is He? We're the ones who are confused. So if we're having some dissension or disagreement, what should we do? Well, we ought to go to the Word. And this is going to take some time. Amen? We didn't come to our convictions overnight, right? And somebody's going to have to change, or we're both going to have to change. And listen, that's not going to happen overnight, so what's going to be required? Patience, forbearance, respect, love, unity, peace. Understand? Family, listen. We need to be about the business of making peace, living in peace. Let the peace of the Spirit that's already there exist. Don't disrupt it in as much as it is possible with you. Amen? Are you with me? Okay. Boy, it's awful quiet in here. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Here Paul exhorts leaders in the church in regard to shepherding the flock. See his strong exhortation, we urge you, brethren, This isn't just another practical um, exhortation he's giving. Here he's urging them now, okay? We urge you, impressing upon them a series of important practical exhortations for their ministry and for all Christians in all churches as well. Verse 14 brings four exhortations. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Notice how the remedy is fit for the infirmity. So if you will, what do the unruly need? They need to be admonished. What do the faint-hearted need? You see that? Notice how the remedy is fit for the infirmity. The unruly need to be admonished as to correct their rebel heart. But those who are faint-hearted need to be encouraged. The weak need help carrying their load. And we must be patient with everyone for God knows our growth and godliness is at times moving rather slowly. Amen? Is your growth and godliness moving a little slow? <laughs> Sometimes painfully slow. Amen? As is common in Christian teaching, we are not to take revenge. And Paul makes that clear here, stating, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Surely these persecuted Thessalonians had many occasions to repay evil, to repay with evil. So Paul exhorts them not to. 
in contrast to being vengeful, he gives them that wonderful exhortation to Christian love, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now that's a mouthful. Think about that little section of scripture. Look what he's saying. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Friend, you need to apply that to your life today. Are you with me? Are you hearing what God is saying here? Listen. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. What a wonderful world this would be if men only practiced this one rule. Is this not, in fact, the golden rule of our Lord? Matthew 7:12. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. How many of you know what Jesus means when he says, this is the law and the prophets? Somebody tell me what that means. What about it? It's the Old Testament. Right? It's a summation. It's a summation of the whole Bible. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is what the whole Bible means. (laughs) That's what he's saying. This is a summary of the law and the prophets. What? However you want to be treated, treat the other. When all your religion is, is done and said, are you loving one another as yourselves? Because as Pastor Tim has been telling us for weeks now, faith worketh by love. Amen? What good is said faith with no love? Paul says, clanging cymbal, a sounding gong. Without love, I am nothing. Amen? He goes on, verse 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To rejoice always can be difficult to do. But when accompanied by prayer without ceasing, the command is carried out more easily. When these two... Constant rejoicing and constant prayer are accompanied with giving thanks in everything. The sweet temperament of Christian life is obtained. For who can bear the burdens of this weary life without the constant strength that the Lord gives through prayer? And how we are reminded in it to rejoice always and to give thanks in everything as well. This is Paul's teaching elsewhere. For example, in chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 4 through 6, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now listen to what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here's Paul telling us to rejoice always. To be constantly rejoicing. It's a command. You Christians, have joy. I think, I think, yeah, exactly. He was writing that from prison, right? Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Rejoice always, two words. And we get to the end of the book, Paul's spitting out all these practical instructions one after the other, right? And we kind of just go right by this. Rejoice always. And we're on to the next thing. Right? Stop. Rejoice always. 
In Philippians, Paul anticipates this, and he says, again, I will say, rejoice. He kind of has to put the brakes on you and say, wait a minute, time out. Don't just read right by this. Stop. Listen to what God is saying. He's telling you to constantly rejoice. God, the creator of the universe, even your Lord, Jesus Christ, is telling you to always rejoice, to constantly rejoice, to be rejoicing always. Can I say it another way? Are you with me? So, listen, if you're in your dark, dingy bucket of despair, you need to hear this word. You need to hear this word. The Bible, God himself, is commanding you to rejoice in your bucket of despair. Okay? Sean, doesn't that mean, though, to rejoice in him? You don't have to rejoice your bucket of despair. Well, God God forbid, if you have cancer or your child just died or you're like Job and you just lost all your wealth and all your children and now you got sores from head to toe and your wife is telling you to curse God and die, right? Those aren't things to rejoice over, right? right? So what must we rejoice over? Well, that's obvious, right? The only things we can rejoice over. And of course, the Christian has such great hope in the midst of all of those things. Amen? And so, here's this other thing. If you're in your bucket of despair, I don't know what else to call it. Your bout with depression, whatever you want to call it. Okay, that we all face at various times, some more than others, some more prone to that than others. Right? What are you going to do when God tells you to rejoice and all you can think about is the immensity of your pain and suffering? Well, I want to exhort you to get your eyes off your problems and get your eyes onto God. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that's easy. That, that may come at a great price. It may come at much pain that you're facing and suffering, of which I'm not acquainted. Okay, but God is. Christ is acquainted. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Are you with me? It's something God gives. God will give you the joy. You reach out to Him. You cry out to Him. You cry out to God for joy, I'll tell you exactly what you'll get. Joy. And it, the Lord may take a teaching or two to get you there. Okay? Amen? So, hear this word from the Lord, family. Rejoice always. Dear Christian, pay close attention here. For Paul gives the key to living a profoundly joyful life here. It is only through our faith in the sovereign God that he apportions to us those circumstances that are best to work for our good. And being reminded of his providence through prayer and thanksgiving, that we can ascend to that wonderful virtue of life in Christ, whereby we can rejoice always. Moreover, Paul tells us that this is not optional, but rather, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you in Christ Jesus? that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, and that you uh, give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here Paul refers to God's moral will of desire for us to be constantly in prayer with thanksgiving so that we can always rejoice before him. Dear Christian, learn here 
The kingdom of God abides in us with such power that we can live in constant joy. Amen? Of this section, the text of John, of this section of text, John Calvin comments. Now, I'm going to read this to you, and this is in 16th century Calvin verbiage, okay? But what he says here is absolutely profound. And if you get a chance, go back home and read this real slowly and think about it, okay? Calvin writes of this text, he's commenting and he says, he, he's talking about Paul, observes here almost the same order, though in fewer words. For in the first place, he would have us hold God's benefits in such esteem that the recognition of them and meditation upon them shall overcome all sorrow. And unquestionably, if we consider what Christ has conferred upon us, there will be no bitterness of grief so intense as may not be alleviated and give way to spiritual joy. For if this joy does not reign in us, the kingdom of God is at the same time banished from us, or we from it. And very ungrateful is that man to God who does not set so high a value on the righteousness of Christ and the hope of eternal life as to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. As, however, our minds are easily dispirited until they give way to impatience, we must observe the remedy that he subjoins immediately afterwards. For on being cast down and laid low, we are raised up again by prayers because we lay upon God what burdens us. As, however, there are every day, nay, every moment, many things that may disturb our peace and mar our joy. He, for this reason, bids us pray without ceasing. That God has such a disposition toward us in Christ that even in our afflictions we have large occasion of thanksgiving. For what is fitter or more suitable for pacifying us then we, when, we, when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. Let us, therefore, bear in mind that this is a special remedy for correcting our impatience, to turn away our eyes from beholding present evils that torment us and to direct our views to a consideration of a different nature, how God stands affected toward us in Christ. May it be that we ascend above this depressing world of grief and pain into that heavenly place where Jesus reigns and his people live in joyful assembly before him. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is Calvin saying? He's saying that the blessing that has come to us in Christ so far exceeds the sorrow and pain of this life that it is sufficient enough to cheer us should we tend to meditate and ponder those things. Amen? Amen. Okay. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Here Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit. Here Paul transitions from the practical exhortations toward Christian attitudes to some that pertain to the corporate practice of preaching and teaching of God's word. Whether one connects verse 19 to the preceding verses 
or to the verses that follow, it is clear that we are to allow the motivating power of the Spirit to enable us to remain faithful in the practice of Christian life. So think about it. What's Paul saying when he says, do not quench the Spirit? He says, do not quench the Spirit as to say that we by our stubborn wills can indeed quench the motivating activity of the Spirit. Therefore, let us abide in a lively exercise of our faith and not allow our Christian life to become lifeless or weak, but let the motivation power of the Spirit forge us on as if a great wind in a sail. So, in other words, what, what Paul is saying is, if you will, the NIV renders this verse, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Because actually the Greek word for quench actually means put out. The problem with that is is that they add the word fire, which isn't in the Greek. So um, we're trying to help you see that the words in Greek that say put out correspond to something like fire, but they kind of miss the point. However, it's very accurately rendered in, in the New American and in the King James and in the New King James, do not quench the spirit, okay? But it still kind of has the same idea, if you will if you can see it in that sense. And that is that the Spirit motivates us. The Spirit encourages us. The Spirit gives us life. Amen? And what are we not to do? To put it out. To shun or reject the Spirit's motivation. Right? We're not to quench the fire that the Spirit lights in our souls. Amen? That's not hard to understand, is it? That's what he says. Now, the controversy here comes with, do you see Paul saying, do not quench the Spirit as connected to the preceding verses, the ones we just studied, or do you see Paul connecting that to the verses that follow? Or a third option, you don't see it connecting to either. It's just another one of these practical instructions that he's giving. Okay? That's the controversy among the commentators. Don't you feel greatly enlightened now? <laughs> it's, it's actually rather important, but uh, nonetheless, I'm not going to fight all those dragons. Um, bottom of page 62, he goes on, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. There is much controversy concerning this passage of which the context of this lesson does not allow us time to indulge. In summary, some see the gift of prophecy as giving an infallible, spontaneous revelation from the Spirit of God, whereas others see it as giving a spontaneous yet fallible revelation from the Spirit. Joined to these two opposing views is the view that it is simply preaching from an inspired text and giving comforting, encouraging, or corrective exhortations from the already infallible and inspired God-breathed text. Okay? To sum that up, these three views are most widely held concerning the gift of prophecy, and of course, each has its exegetical issues. So what are they? They're these three. These are the three most widely held concerning the gift of prophecy. Now you have to understand something. Listen to what Paul's saying. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Okay? What's he talking about? Well, it's important for us to understand that. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Concerning what these prophetic utterances are, 
there's three very widely held views. These are the most common. That's why I'm giving them to you, and I'm summarizing them for you. Number one, the gift of prophecy is an infallible, spontaneous revelation from the Spirit of God. Or number two, that it's spontaneous yet fallible revelation from the Spirit. Number three, that it is simply preaching from an inspired text and giving comforting, exhorting, or corrective exhortations from the already infallible and inspired God-breathed text. Okay, now, those are the three widely held views. Now, let me tell you, every single one of them has exegetical issues. In other words, if you hold one of those, you could easily say, well, what about this verse of Scripture? And what about that verse of Scripture? And what about this issue and that issue? And what about this context and that context? Okay? The gift of prophecy in the New Testament is a difficult doctrine. There's a lot of controversy about it. Okay? So, what am I going to do about that? (laughs) Without entering the fray here, I will offer what I think is the most important application of these verses to our modern context. Being that most Christian churches hold and practice one of these three views above listed, let us therefore apply these verses in subjection to the pastoral leadership in our local church. Therefore, Whichever position your church practices when the word is preached, do not despise prophetic utterances, for it would be very dangerous for you to despise the word of God. So here's what I'm saying. Regardless of which one of those your church practices, okay, the command is for you not to despise God's word. You with me? Mm -hmm. If you're a little confused, listen on. The word of God is to be cherished, believed, and obeyed with all diligence and with a focused and intense commitment. Our attitude toward the word is to be much like the psalmist, Psalm 119, verses 111 and following. He says there, I have inherited thy testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love thy law. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I wait for thy word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. You see, the psalmist doesn't despise God's word. He loves it. It's what he waits for all day long. It's the joy of his heart. He wants to perform God's statutes. He wants to be away with evildoers so that he can obey God's word. Amen? He doesn't despise the word of God. Instead, rather, he holds it in high esteem. The word of God is not to be despised. Instead, you should examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, is what Paul says here. The command here is plain and evident. That is, to exercise careful discernment to see if the nature and application of the teaching is in fact according to what God has said in Scripture. To say it another way, Listen and carefully make an assessment of what is being taught and preached. And in so much as it accords with God's spirit and his word, accept it as the very word of God. Much like the Bereans under Paul's ministry, there in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and following. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, do you remember 
when we started the book of 1 Thessalonians, we learned that Paul was in Thessalonica and he was there preaching for some three to four weeks. And then what happened? Well, the Jews got angry and they got a mob and they ran him out of town. And when he ran out of town, where did he go? He went to Berea, about 50 miles away. And so when he got to Berea, he went to the synagogue (laughs) again, right? And started preaching and teaching. Now, look what the text says about the Bereans. They were what? More noble than the Thessalonians, right? Thus, the instruction in chapter 5 to do what? Not despise prophetic utterances, but instead to what? Look what he says. Examine everything carefully. The very thing he's uh, uh, commending the Bereans for. Why? They were more noble. Why? Because they examined everything carefully. Everything Paul said, they went home and read their Bible. They went home and looked in the scripture. Right? You got to bear in mind, it's not as easy as you and me. We got these Bibles like this, you know, I got a thumb index and I got a concordance and everything right here in my hand. Nobody in that day and time had that benefit. It's a lot of work to go home and search the scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying was true. Are you with me? Nevertheless, he's he's telling his Thessalonians, look, here's how you need to handle the word of God in your corporate worship. You need to not despise the word of God. You need to examine it very carefully and hold fast to that which is good. You need to be like those Bereans. When they hear the word of God, they're very concerned about what's being taught and what's being said. And they're going to exercise discernment. They're going to spend some diligent time finding out if what you're saying is true. They're going to esteem that word. They're not going to despise it. Are you with me? After it has been accepted, one should therefore be careful to obey it quickly and in a manner fitting of the one who spoke it. Paul says, Hold fast to that which is good, meaning to cling tightly to it, as if to value and esteem it highly. It also goes without saying that if one finds what has been said to clearly contradict God's word, it should be rejected. Being that most Christian churches hold and practice one of these three views above listed, let us therefore apply these verses in subjection to the pastoral leadership in our local church. Now listen closely. I wrote this down so you can go back and read it. Okay? If the issue becomes one of such annoyance and distress upon one's conscience, I would exhort you to humbly and prayerfully engage the pastoral leadership in your church, and this only after you have very diligently studied the matter and made some very credible and defendable conclusions from the text of Scripture. When engaging the leadership, much respect and patience must be exercised. Do not gossip, stir up anxious hearts, or speak disrespectfully about others during this time or any time for that matter. After much prayer, discussion, and efforts to both keep the peace and bless and benefit all who are involved, you cannot continue to worship with a clear conscience, then it may be time to find another church where you can worship in an unhindered manner. James' words are fitting for one in this situation. He says, chapter 3, verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. 
And the seed whose fruit is sown in righteousness, I'm sorry, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, kind of sum that up for you. No, no matter what church you find yourself in, they take a view of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and the gift of prophecy according to one of these three views or something very closely related. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you ought to live in subjection to the leadership in your church. You shouldn't cause factions against the leadership in your church. You understand what I'm saying? You're not to upset the whole cart or horse in a church. For God has appointed leaders over that church who are the ones who have charge over you in the Lord. Are you with me? So, what do you do if you don't agree with the church concerning some essential doctrinal matter or one that's of such essential nature to you that it's under your skin and you can't worship with a clear conscience? Well, I just told you what you should do. You should very humbly and respectfully and prayerfully engage the leadership. And if through that process, being very careful to make sure you know what you're talking about and you're taking them to the text of Scripture and you're being very patient and you're exercising all the Christian virtues, you're still unable to worship with a clear conscience, then leave that church. Don't start evil. Don't open up your mouth and speak disrespectfully. Don't cause a bunch of dissension. Now you're acting like a devil, not a child of God. Are you with me? <clears throat> and so what I'm saying, now, of course, the comments I'm making are, you know, there's a lot of things that could be said in one way or another based on the context of a certain or given situation. Are you with me? So these principles apply generally to this kind of a situation. Nevertheless, what I'm exhorting you to do is to follow the leadership of the church to, in a very godly way, engage them. And if it is your conscience that is still struggling, then you need to do something about that. Okay? And that something is not to disrupt the unity of a church over that issue. Okay? <laughs> okay. Shall we pray? Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we praise you, Lord, that your word is so comprehensive. And that, Lord, you speak to us about every little detail. And I pray, Father, that you would give us insight into these words which you have spoken to us. That, Lord, we would esteem them and value these words and cherish them and love them and wait to obey them. Father, give us hearts like the psalmist who loves your word. God, we thank you for all that you have said to us, and we thank you for the privilege of holding it in our hands. God, may we also hold it in our hearts. We praise you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Amen.